Oh man, I think one of the wonderful elements of this book is seeing this spectrum of these Dominican women, I mean, how to describe them, these powerhouses in many ways, getting these voices, these multiple voices. I think it's, it's hard to overestimate how formidable an achievement that is. That's author Juno Diaz talking about Julia Alvarez's novel and current Big Read selection in the time of the butterflies. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast from the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Julia Alvarez's second brilliant novel in the time of the butterflies is set in the Dominican Republic. It's a fictionalized account of the Mirabal sisters, three of whom were murdered by the henchmen of dictator Rafael Trujillo for their resistance to his regime. The girls were known in the underground by their code name, Las Mariposas, or Butterflies. Julia Alvarez spent her childhood in the Dominican Republic until the family fled the country because of her father's political activities. Author Juno Diaz's family also left the Dominican Republic when he was six. Although they didn't leave because of political persecution, the brutal Trujillo regime was also a touchstone for Diaz, and that history is, in many ways, the spine of the brief, wondrous life of Oscar Wao. Juno Diaz deeply admires Julia Alvarez and In the Time of the Butterflies, and agreed to speak to me about it back in 2010 for the Big Read Audio Guide. It turned into a wide-ranging discussion about Julia's book, The Trujillo Regime, Diaz's extraordinary prize-winning novel, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wao, and The Gift of Being a Reader. It was a 45-minute discussion, of which about four minutes were used in the multi-voiced audio guide to Butterflies. I always knew I'd come back to Juno's interview. The material was too good. So here we are. Juno and I spoke in his Cambridge apartment, so be prepared for some traffic noise. He remembered when he first read Julia Alvarez's novel, In the Time of the Butterflies. Of course, I read it when it was first published. Any novel by a Dominican writer, by a Caribbean writer, uh, is going to be of great interest to me. And this novel, more so, because the early reviews were incredibly positive, and the topic absolutely fascinated me. So I ran and got it uh, as soon as it was published. Do you mind telling me the story? Just give me a thumbnail sketch of In the Time of the Butterflies. Well, In the Time of the Butterflies deals with a terrible, traumatic period in Dominican history and the history of the Dominican Republic. Uh, it's about a family of young women, the Mirabal sisters, who play a fundamental role in the liberation struggles against the dictator for life of the Dominican Republic in that period, Rafael Trujillo. And it is a look at the four young Mirabal sisters who, remarkable as they were as individuals, are even more extraordinary when put into the context of the Dominican period at the time and the fact that these were all people coming from one family. 
When did you first hear about the Mir- Mirabal sisters? You know, I'm I'm Dominican. I've known about them since I was a kid. And were they revered in your family? No, not at all. Um, they were more of a, a historical curiosity. I didn't come from any kind of left wing, any kind of progressive family. My family was conservative. My family uh, had. Uh, military background, the Dominican Republic. So when you read Julia's book, was some of it a revelation for you, or was it retelling a story that you already knew? The history wasn't. I mean, I'm a big-time history nerd. By then, I mean, I was already fully along in most of my historical studies, so none of the history was a revelation. Um, It's all pretty well documented if you're into Dominican history. The illumination of these young women's interior lives, the, I would say, the capillary specificity of their imagined subjectivities was the real revelation. Uh, The book was extraordinarily powerful and human in ways that very few histories can possibly achieve. And in fact, I feel like the novel did more for understanding the Mirabal sisters than any historical document that I have come across. Well, let's talk about why is it you think that fiction can get at a deeper truth than the facts can or that a a history can? Well, I mean, I think it's it's less about a deeper truth and more about the fact that both sorts of narratives, historical narratives and fiction narratives, have certain kinds of advantages. One of the advantages that uh, fictional narratives have is their ability to um, uh, their ability to sort of mimic or create a wonderful, accurate, if not realistic view of a person's interiority. In other words, fiction is brilliant at giving us the human, at giving us hearts, as has been said by greater individuals, hearts that struggle with themselves. Uh, That's not necessarily the interest or the claim of most uh, historical texts. They're trying to give us different kinds of information. I think that we need both and many other kinds of narratives to begin to address any historical period. But I think that people are especially susceptible, especially vulnerable to tales that foreground the human. People connect with people strongly, palpably, emphatically in ways that they don't connect with figures and they don't connect with theories and they don't connect with abstractions. The advantage of fiction is that it's almost always about people. And we love connecting with people. We love it. Can you give us a sense of the pervasiveness of Trujillo's repression in the Dominican Republic? You wrote about it in your book, Oscar Wow. Certainly Julia does in The Time of the Butterflies. But I think it's stunning for many of us to get a sense of how pervasive his reach and grasp war? Well, I mean, I always think it's good to understand things by what's said at the margins or outside of the area we're talking about. I mean, I have spoken to older Puerto Ricans who've never been to the Dominican Republic, who spoke about how the great terror of their youth was 
this idea of the Trujillato, of the Trujillo regime, of the Dominican Republic, that that's where incredibly scary and terrible things happened. I spoke only two weeks ago, three weeks ago, to a Navy man, retired, talking about coming into port in the Dominican Republic, a U.S. Navy man, and uh, American ships uh, were allowed to have liberty there, and how utterly creeped out they all were, because the place was so gripped with fear that it was palpable even to young men who just wanted to party, to get drunk, to chase girls, to gamble. Even to these sort of young men, it was very, very apparent that this was a country being utterly terrorized. And he said to me a thing that really struck me. He's like, I did not sleep easy till we put that damn city behind us. He's like, no matter how much we drank, I could never sleep easy because it was so fear was everywhere. It was leaking out of people's pores. And again, you know, one can go on, but I think that in some ways that's rather demonstrative of what we're talking about. We're talking about a country where there was a, a pseudo totalitarian repressive panopticon that kept everybody under surveillance, everybody under control, that was utterly ab arbitrary and that could direct hideous violence towards families, towards individuals, towards communities. And my God, did it ever. And that violence and those echoes of that violence had a traumatizing effect on the population. You've dealt with this period in fiction as well. Can you just talk about what some of the challenges of dealing with historical figures in fiction are? I think it's difficult enough to create characters, period, and characters who make sense to people and characters who move people, you know, and characters who challenge people. I think it becomes even all that harder when these are real-life figures, when these are historical figures, when these are people who sort of have a, a reputation, um, who have a myth already developed around them. I think it's hard to get people to see new things about them. Um, you know, I think that that's one of the challenges. It's also, you know, you're writing about another world. The past is as distant to us as Middle Earth is to us. And so you have to not only create these people, you also have to create the world that they inhabit, which is no longer present for us. We no longer have access to it, you know. And that world includes uh, elements that are sometimes outside of our imaginaries, um, at least for those folks who are residing in quote-unquote traditional U.S. communities. I mean, uh, living under a, a nightmare regime like the Trujillato, for most people, that's not everyday life. For some people, lamentably, that is. But, you know, as a writer, you have to also create that. Um, you know, nothing easy about it, you know, and I think that that's why it's sort of the joy that is found in the time of the butterflies, the the energy, the spirit for life, the playfulness that exists in this book, despite all the horrors it describes. It's really like, I'm telling you, man, this is, this is no mean achievement to be able to do all this because, you know, she had to get all these things correct to write this historical novel. She had to, Julia had to juggle all of these flaming bowling balls at the same time, and yet she had to do so in a way that maintained the, the life force of these young women. And to do so is such a commendable and almost um, impossible to repeat performance. 
Julia Alvarez's performance might be impossible to repeat. And Juno Diaz wasn't trying when he wrote the novel The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wao. Instead, Diaz created a wild, funny, heartbreaking book about a fat Dominican-American nerd named Oscar, who's into comic books, science fiction, fantasy novels, and role-playing games in a big way. But we also get his family's story, and it's one that's centered on the women in Oscar's life. His sister, Lola, a punk rocker, and particularly their mother, Belicia, who was raised in the Dominican Republic in comfortable circumstances until her parents ran afoul of Trujillo, where the horrifying stories of the dictatorship unfold and whose evil spirit follows the family to the U.S. In telling the story, Diaz brings in the history of the Dominican Republic, some science fiction, fantasy, a lot of profanity, and literary references in equal measure. And boy, does it work. It is a fabulous read, which won a raft of prizes, including the Pulitzer and the National Book Award. It is so unlikely to have a character like Oscar in the center of a book with such scope. So where did Oscar come from? Hard to say. I wanted to write a book about a big old nerd. I wanted to write a book about the kind of nerd that people still refuse to talk about. It doesn't matter how many Oscar Wilde's are written, you know, the idea of a nerd of color, the idea of an immigrant nerd, it's so impossible. Even regular, quote unquote, white nerds don't want to imagine or don't want to allow the space for this nerd to exist. So, you know, I picked what I would consider one of the most conventional invisible figures. Conventional because he's not in a war, because he's not in a concentration camp, because, you know, sort of no extreme experiences. The Jersey sort of Jersey boy, you know, going to an okay school, and uh, but yet as probably as far in the margins as one can imagine, you know, the he's the prosaic, fantastic in some ways. Each narrator has such a distinctive voice. What made you decide to go using multiple perspectives with this? Well, you know, I always tell my students it's just a nickel-dime solution to a million-dollar problem. You want to give the sense that this is a larger community. You want to give the sense that this book is somehow has the complexity, the diversity, the cacophony of life. And so having multiple voices gives you that, you know, gives you that sense without you having to write millions of characters or without you having to go the Cecil B. DeMille mode. Oscar's sister Lola and their mother Belicia are both vivid characters with distinctive voices. I wondered how difficult it was for Juno to wrap his mind around these female characters in particular. I mean, to write any character, it always is like a huge pain in the ass. Uh, The women characters were uh, equally challenging. I think they were probably way more challenging than anything I'd ever tackled. You know, it's it's tough because half the planet has got some authority on whether your women voices sound any good or not, you know, and they're more than happy to share their opinions of your failures and your shortcomings. So, you know, and uh, on top of that, I had made sort of what little tiny career I'd had to that moment from writing very particular masculine voices. And uh, for me, it was going to be this really big reversal, this really big change. Um, so, yeah, it was a big old struggle, but one that I kind of was happy I undertook, man, because uh, it was a joy to live with Belicia and Lola for a little while. It was a joy. They were tremendous gifts of the imagination. I mean, in some ways, 
you know, a ferocious, ferocious Belicia and her willful and positive daughter. I just, I was glad to have spent the, all the years that I spent with them. I really was very glad. How old were you when you came from the Dominican Republic? I was six years old. Were your parents already here? My father was already here. Me, my mother, and my other three siblings, we came uh, to live and settle in New Jersey, right outside of Perth Amboy. Yeah, not far from the Amboy Cinemas, for those who know. <laughs> and how was it for you? Do you remember very much about it? Oh, yeah, yeah. The same way I always say, the same way you'll remember that arm if I cut it off. Yeah, uh, I both remember the Dominican Republic, and I remember what I arrived to with a level of detail that only loss and shock can provide. Oh, I remember them very, very, very powerfully. When did you discover books? I think I discovered books as soon as I landed. I think within, within months, I mean, within weeks, I was at school, enrolled, ready to go. And, and within days of being enrolled, we were all taken to the library and given a little tour of the library. And when I saw that tiny room, probably, probably only double the size of this room, when I saw that room, I think, you know, sometimes there's a click in the universe. And at that moment, there was a click. My life changed. I met my future in a way. And a part of me knew it. A part of me knew it. I fell in love with books so profoundly when I was six years old. Uh, yeah, just really did, really did. And that... That love has carried me through to today. Did kids in your neighborhood understand that, or were you kind of the nerdy kid? I mean, I don't know. Does what kid understands another kid's passion? I grew up very protected uh, in some ways. I had a big family. I had a family who didn't mind fighting a lot. So that, you know, me, the third oldest sibling, was protected. I mean, I think in the end, you know, this was the 70s. I think that the the gears about masculinity, about urban masculinity, hadn't really caught up yet. So I think that had I come up, let's say, in the 80s and 90s, being a book lover would have been even crazier than it was when I was a kid. When I was a kid, it was, you know, it was a certain accepted level of freakery. You know, in other words, it was a freakish thing to do. But again... I had a, a family that sort of protected me, you know, and I think that that was, that was a lifesaver in some ways. I wonder what it would have been like without them. My vision of what it meant, uh, you know, comes from that. I, I certainly did not feel ostracized for being a smart kid the way that Oscar was ostracized for being a nerd. I mean, not even close. Mm -hmm. you know? Well, how does the work work? Very, very slowly. Very, very slowly. And a product of tremendous amounts of reading you know i think that i need to leave, i need to read at least a hundred books before i can write a story away you know i think I, I might extract a word from each book i read and so you know or maybe a sentence from each book i read and uh that's that's been a sort of a, an interesting journey because for me the writing is uh connected so intrinsically to this immense amount of reading that i do um, I read voraciously, omnivorously, compulsively. And uh, in some ways, all that reading and that experience of being a reader shapes my writing more than anything. And then there's, of course, the daily work, the getting up. These days, I get up earlier and earlier, get up at 6 a.m., work three hours, 
you know, four hours and then go do my regular job of teaching and then try to get a couple hours of reading in. You know, it's just really mundane. I mean, for something that can have such miraculous effects as art, the actual daily practice of it is really, really kind of boring. Well, this is a work question because you teach creative writing. Does that kind of take some of the juice away from your own writing or do you think it adds to it? I really I love teaching, but for me, anything that keeps me away from reading is going to somehow disrupt my writing. I mean, I think that that's what teaching does, keeps me from reading more than anything. Because, you know, the writing's always, you're always going to figure out a way to get a couple hours in. But the reading is something that you just end up jettisoning, which stinks. Again, I, I really, I love teaching. I love my students. But let me tell you, if I win a $30 million lottery tomorrow, I will probably never teach again. The dream, the dream of the person of leisure for me would be the dream of just endless reading. Yeah. What do you get from reading? Um, I guess I never know what I don't get from reading. The only thing that reading can't give you is the world. And for that, there's travel and there's like really throwing yourself out there. Um, but, you know, reading is a wonderful way to come in contact with other human subjectivities. Nothing communicates the interiority of another human quite like a novel can or the interiorities of other humans quite like a novel can. I mean, for me, books have always given me that fundamental human experience, which is communion. I feel very strongly, a very strong love and need for communion. And novels and fiction give that to me across space and time. There's no way the internet can compete with a novel for connecting me. Yeah, I mean, the internet can connect me maybe to someone in Kazakhstan, but a novel can connect me to someone in Kazakhstan 200 years ago. Really remarkable stuff, you know? And not just at the level of words, but can connect us to the level of spirit, at the level of dreams, at the level of hope. It's really great, man. It's like, it's worth the price of admission, yeah. And it, there's also something about that connection with other people that often connects, at least me, to a deeper part of myself that I had no idea was even there. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's exactly accurate. You know how people talk about books as writerly books? Oscar Wilde struck me as a readerly book. Yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree. I would not disagree. Yeah, I kept telling myself when I was reading this, excuse me, reading, when I was writing this book, uh, I kept telling myself what I always wanted to be. You know, there's this sort of this, this uh, title that is given uh, or this category of a writer's writer. I'd always wanted to be a reader's writer. I just, I just think that reading as a praxis, you know, reading as a way to understand the world, you know, reading as a way to shape the world um, has really drove this novel. And I think it's no accident you, you felt that. I felt like I was in very safe hands. Oh, man, I wish I had felt that when I was writing it. Yeah, I I'm bet. Glad, I'm, glad, <laughs> I'm glad it worked that way for someone. Yeah, I'm glad it worked out with somebody. There is something that happens when you're in the grip of a novel where you just don't want to do anything else. You come home and you think, wow, I get to read this book now. Yeah, no, that's, I'm telling you, when that happens to you, that's when, that's when every book that you've ever had to, like, drive yourself through or that you ever had to force yourself through or that you ever fell asleep through, that's when, like, 
all those experiences are suddenly worth it when you have that one moment where you are captivated and transported. Yeah, you realize that all those other books were preparation for this one. That was Juno Diaz. He's the author of The Brief, Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, and more recently, This Is How You Lose Her. Julia Alvarez is the author of The Big Read Selection, In the Time of the Butterflies. You can find out more about The Big Read at arts.gov. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. And now you can get the Artworks podcast at iTunes. If you like us, please subscribe and rate us. It helps people to find the podcast. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.